Greetings and welcome to the Five By, your favorite source for rapid fire board game reviews. This episode, Ruel starts us off with Zany Penguins. Then we have special guest star Nicole from Great Way Games covering Medici, the card game. Mason is splitting and choosing animals in Animals on Board, which doesn't sound very vegan friendly. But I'm making all the vegan friendly wares for you in Oaxaca, Crafts of a Culture. And last but certainly not least, Sarah just slays her latest piece by covering Mystery Rummy, Jack the Ripper. Hi, Ruel here. Let's check out Zany Penguins, a card game designed by Bruno Cathala and Matthew Lanvin, with art by Remy Tournier and published by Bombix in 2016. Your penguins are trying to take over the world by controlling the majority of five strategic zones, Antarctica, the desert, the jungle, the city, and the moon. Each strategic zone is a set of 18 cards in one color, each depicting a funny and usually zany penguin. They're numbered 1 through 9 and distributed in a standard bell curve, with 5 being the most common number. All players get 18 random cards for their personal deck. A round consists of three steps. First, draw two cards and add them to your hand. Next, pass one card face down to the player on your left and pass one to the player on your right. Finally, take the cards given to you by the other players and add them to your hand. Choose one card to play face down in front of you. Players then reveal their cards simultaneously. Any special actions are resolved, then cards are placed on top of your previously played matching cards. After eight rounds, the game ends and cards are scored. For each of the five colors of the strategic zones in your play area, add up the total of your numbered penguins. Whoever has the highest total in each color scores all of that color's cards in their hand. So, if you won the Antarctica zone, you'd score all of the blue cards in your hand. All of those who lost in a particular color will score the lowest of that color's cards in their hand. So, if you lost the yellow color, and had the yellow 7, 8, and 4 in your hand, you'd only score the 4. If you don't have a card for a color, then you score 0 points. The player with the most points wins. For what looks like a light and silly card game, Zany Penguins packs a lot of tough decisions into its 20-minute playtime. The whimsical art and card drafting mechanism will bring Sushi Go to mind, but that's where the similarities end. The two games are vastly different, with Zany Penguins being the meteor of the two. It's an underrated gem of a game that mixes card drafting, area majority, and set collection. From start to finish, you're constantly trying to decide how to help and or hinder your opponents. In fact, in all of my plays, I'm always surprised by how thinky this little game can be. Draw cards, try to figure out what to pass to your opponents, then play your own. It's a simple turn structure, but it doesn't mean it's an easily mastered game. My favorite of the cards are the 1, 2, and 3, since they'll have their special abilities triggered when played. The number one card is the Ninja Twins, and allows the players to play two cards on their next turn, much like the Chopsticks card in Sushi Go. The number two card is the Kamikaze. When a two is played, then any seven, eight, or nine cards played that round are removed from the game. The number three card is the Spotter. Play this, and on the next round you'll watch the others play their cards before choosing yours to play. These three abilities make the lowest cards worth something, and they also add a nice layer of strategy. What do you give to your opponents? Obviously you don't want to give away the high cards like 7, 8, or 9, but maybe you do. While holding on to the 2 card, aka the Kamikaze, which, if you play it, will force players to discard those high cards if they're played that round. I love this ongoing battle of wits throughout the game. It's fun trying to outthink and bluff your opponents. Why'd she give me a 9? Is she going to play the Kamikaze this round? Why'd he give me another yellow card? Is he holding on to the high yellow cards? And what color should I focus on? The luck of the draw early on may force you to focus on certain colors, 
but as your hand grows each round, you'll be given more choices. The only negative of Zany Penguins is its scoring. While Sushi Go is straight set collection, and scoring points is easily explained, the area majority mechanism in Zany Penguins can sometimes take a round or two before it's clearly understood. It's also easy to forget that unless you've played a particular color, you won't score any of those colored cards in your hand. Zany Penguins is an outstanding filler game for casual and non-gamers, and it's sure to surprise seasoned gamers as well. These penguins may look zany, but the gameplay certainly isn't. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi there. I'm Nicole, one of the co-hosts of Great Way Games, popping in for some 5 by action. Back when I was first dipping my toe into hobby board games, one of the first games I tried was Medici. I'd never really experienced anything like it before in many ways. The art, the rule set, the gameplay, most of what I'd played previously was mass market, so this was a very different road to travel. I've only played Medici once or twice since then, as games heavy on auction phases tend to not be near the top of my fun list. So I was a little hesitant to try Medici the card game due to its provenance, but a friend enthused about it, and the small box and lovely card art drew me in. Medici the Card Game, designed by Reiner Knizia and published by Grau Games in 2016, is for 2-6 to six players. While it shares the same setting of 15th century Florence, and a similar tone as the original game, the card game streamlines the overall play down to a market phase, with a little bit of push-your-luck, and some set collection throughout all three rounds. The player who has earned the most florins, thanks to shipping and goods, will win the game. Each round consists of two phases. First, players draw cards from a shared marketplace into their ship, and these will have either one of five types of goods or a passenger on them, a number value between 0 and 7, and a green or black background. On your turn, you can choose to draw a card from what's on display in the marketplace, or you can flip a new card to add it to the row. And this is where the push-your-luck aspect of the game lies. If you draw cards and decide to stop, you must take the last card. You can opt to take one or both of the previous cards. You can only draw up to three marketplace cards in a turn, so there's only so much luck pushing, but this could end up with you taking on goods you're not really interested in. This wouldn't be so much of a problem, except for your ship storage is limited to five cards with the exception of those with a green background, which you can stow away for free. So there are some tricky decisions to make in the heat of the moment there on the busy docks. In this first phase of deciding which cards are the most useful, the values displayed are going to benefit you most. Florins are paid out to those with the most valuable ships, amounts varying over player counts. This can be fabulous quick cash, especially with those fancy mustachioed passengers that are worth a whopping seven points, if you get the right ones. Yet, once your passengers get where they're going, they'll not be giving you a longer-term benefit like goods will. So when the ship scoring is all said and done, players will move their goods, not passengers, down into their warehouse, adding them to cards that might already be there from previous rounds. This accumulation of goods in your warehouse over the three rounds is why you might like to be a little picky in the marketplace phase, because having the most of a certain good will pay out. Going type by type, there's majority scoring around the table for all good types. The player with the most gains 10 florins, and the second most gains 5, 
with bonuses for stockpiling goods, even if you don't have the majority. You can be a little mean where ties are concerned in this game. With five florins being the smallest change, ties that don't neatly divide into that are not paid out. So it's worth keeping an eye on what other warehouses in your district are stocking up on. Between this and folks perhaps coming across a good deal in the marketplace before you do, that's about as mean as Medici the card game gets. And that is fine by me. This is a wonderful production from Grail Games. The cards and coins are a lovely quality, and the art is outstanding. This is not a surprise, given it's Vincent Dutrait's work, but the style, the palette, and the vibrancy really makes the game pop on the table, along with the shiny Florence. And while the aforementioned box is a small, portable one, I highly recommend throwing this one in your quiver to take to gaming events and conventions because it's a great option for something that's not a social or party game for up to six players. I've brought it out for the lower end of the player count too, and it's not disappointing. But then Knizia really knows what he's doing, and taking his original game and distilling it down into a reasonably short, semi-cerebral card game has absolutely worked. It's got a great flow to it, there are very basic rules that don't change over the course of the game, and scoring out is quick and easy, which makes it a far more accessible version of the original. Not that the two are mutually exclusive. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's time to head to the marketplace and see what I can rustle up. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about animals on board. Many of the things I truly love fall into the categories of sublimely weird or amusingly grotesque, and animals on board is kind of both. It's a rules-light, I-split-you-choose game with a slightly sinister and sacrilegious theme that I enjoy, creepy cute animals, and extremely cool 3D cardboard components. Players are all ARC captains in direct competition with Noah. There's some sort of animal pair arms race, so Noah gets a law passed giving him exclusive domain over pairs of animals. You and your fellow players are therefore forbidden to collect pairs of animals onto your ships. And what ships they are. Each player gets a two-tiered 3D cardboard ARC to hold all ten of their animals. The quick rundown is that there are five animals in each of the twelve families, I am especially partial to the tortoises and crocodiles. You shuffle all the tiles, uh, draw some face up and some face down on the table. You can either split a group of animals and take a box of food, or take a group and pay a box of food for each animal in that group. A single animal is only worth the points printed on it, but three or more animals of the same family are all worth five points. So you want to keep animal families together for yourself, but tear them apart for the other players, you heartless power-mad arc tyrant. Animals on Board has some common elements you'll recognize from other games that I like. It's simple enough to teach to a relatively young kid, but has enough depth that adults who take it seriously are going to get cut through it pretty quickly. There's a slight learning curve on splitting groups that I feel like took me maybe a play or two to really grasp. Because there are face-down tiles, you can't ever really know what other players have, but there's a little bit of bluffing and misdirection in how you choose to split things you yourself might want. You for sure don't want to let other players know which animals you're desperate to have, but you also really want to keep them grouped together until you can buy them. So you're always balancing trying to get the animals you want while trying to break up groups you know the other players need. It's easy to get sucked into the greed trap in animals on board, and you'll probably lose if you do. I love games that make it very attractive for me to get real greedy and then punish me for it later. You can only have five boxes of food hoarded in animals on board, and if you split again to take another, you actually lose a box. So you can't just churn and churn the splits and then cash in big later. 
You're forced to manage your turns tightly since you can only buy once per round. After that, you're out. If everyone else has already bought in the round, you only get one more turn. Oh, mismanaged your food and can't buy any of the sets? Too bad, ding dong, you're probably going to lose now. You really want to have at least 10 tiles at the end of the game. With two or more experienced players, it's often down to the extra point per box of food at the end of the game. We've played a lot and never tied, but it's usually very close. The art and design team behind Animals on Board is stellar for a game that no one really ever talks about much, even though it's only two years old. Rofzer Lind and Wolfgang Sinterker are probably best known for their soon-to-be reprinted masterwork, Finca, and you've seen Alexander Jung's art on a zillion games. He's been illustrating regularly since the early 2000s, and his animal style is pretty singular. There's a unique animal portrait on all 60 tiles, and there are probably other games to be played with this tile set, honestly, but I haven't really looked into it. Jung's greatest achievement in slightly unsettling animal portraits is Beastie Bar and its sequel, but Animals on Board is a close runner-up. There's something just slightly sinister about his super cute animals. They look up at you from the table, directly at you, and it seems like they know too much, like they have secrets. The components in Animals on Board are just great. High-quality tiles and the very cool 3D cardboard arcs. This could easily be a small box card game, but the tiles and the arcs as stands I think set it apart. Rather than having to recheck what's in your hand, all of your animals are right there in front of you all the time. I certainly wouldn't mind a the card game version of Animals on Board just for portability, especially if it accommodated more players. My one critical knock against animals is that it only plays to four. I'm not sure what tweaks you'd need to play it with more, but it sure seems like it wouldn't be that difficult. I suppose if you had two sets, you could combine them in some weird way to add players. I'm thinking maybe duplicate number twos and number threes to each animal set. This is a game that could really benefit from a more players expansion, but we'll absolutely never get one. Animals on board could also be rethemed to pretty much anything, as long as there were 12 suits of one to five, plus three suits per additional player if you really wanted to go all out. While it was never expensive, Animals on Board is $20 or less pretty much everywhere online. We've played it dozens of times in the last couple of years, and its low rules overhead and easy cleanup makes the fun math for this one a very good value. So, who should buy Animals on Board? People who love splitting. People who love choosing. People who like a thimbleful of misdirection. People who are into 3D cardboard animal arcs. And people who don't mind when a cute game goes cutthroat. I give Animals on Board 5 out of 5 side eyes from a cartoon giraffe. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Okay, I'll admit it. I knew very little about Oaxaca when I backed it on Kickstarter. Seeing updates from designer Sarah Reed about the theme and the art, and seeing how hard they'd worked on it, I knew Oaxaca would be something. What, I wasn't exactly sure of, but something. And I was willing to take that bet, especially as, when I backed for the deluxe edition, I'd had some fantastic little wood-carving animals at least. Which, okay, I'll admit are overkill for the game, but totally worth it for me. Anyway, in Oaxaca, spelled O-A-X-A-C-A, we are craftsmakers looking to complete crafts projects for points and the abilities they give us. There are five types of crafts, pottery, jewelry, textiles, wood carvings, and tin. These are represented on the dice as five of the six symbols, and as their own decks of cards. When you roll your die, you can use them to take a card from each deck and bring them into your workshop to work on. Each craft type has its own focus for how you can use them later in your market stall. Once you've brought a card into your workshop, you place the number of work cubes on the card equal to the points, and then remove those cubes using the same matching die face as that card. If you use the matching die face, you get to remove one work cube for each card in your workshop that matches that die face. This means it's to your advantage to get multiple cards of the same type, as that's the most efficient. 
But then so many of the cards help you in different ways with points and abilities, you'll also want to use some different types as well. The reason I emphasized it being a matching die face is because there's also a wild side to the dice. This star face allows you to act on any cards, but at a reduced efficiency. You can only draw one card from each pile and therefore must take it, and when crafting you can only remove one cube from one card. So they're useful, but not like your ideal choice. Okay, but once you've completely crafted a card, then what? Now you can use its ability, usually to help craft cards or to score more points at the end of the game. You can use up to two of your cards each turn, with cards resetting between rounds, so it behooves you to quickly finish cards that may help you finish more cards. There are also tourist cards that can help. Each round there are two tourist cards that give abilities. Once for the round you can place your meeple, or wooden sculpture that you are playing with, on one of the two cards and take that ability. Some act as a die face, and others let you do things like use a die twice, manipulate a die, or use one of your market cards. Once everyone has used all five of their die, the game progresses to the next round. Oaxaca is only played over a course of three rounds. This makes the game exceptionally quick. It was interesting listening to the interview with designers Sarah and Will on their most recent playability podcast talking about how they ended up deciding on three rounds, in addition to the history of the game. I do sometimes wish the game went a little longer, but being fast and fun to play is a huge draw of the game for me. Also, as with all dice games, there's the risk you'll get the dreaded rainbow roll where you end up with a different face on each die. I had a game where that happened the first two rounds, and it was difficult to keep up as the others got their engines running to help them complete a lot more points in the third round. Like I said, it happens, but in this instance, I was glad the game was fast. Oaxaca also comes with a few additional play modes. The first is solo, and if you think the game plays quickly multiplayer, it is blazing fast solo. There are mostly minor differences. You're still crafting items, but here you have specific buyers who give you points when you sell items instead of keeping them in your market. It's a quick but fun puzzle with a scoring rubric. I enjoyed my solo plays immensely. Solo also modifies the wood carving deck. You can leave these cards in for the multiplayer game as well if you want to play in quote unquote friendly mode, which works for me as I'm not really a take that player. There's also a feud expansion that gives you a deck of low-value, high-help cards that you craft with Wild Eye only. Like I said before, the theme of the art is a major reason I backed Oaxaca, and thankfully the game doesn't disappoint. The art and colors in the game are great. I have the playmat, which is gorgeous, but frankly doesn't add much other than table appeal. I do have one complaint with the components area, and that is how slick the cards are. These are many euro sized and pretty slippery, which makes keeping the draw pile straight and neat during gameplay difficult. We've knocked a pile over more than once and then had to pause to straighten it up along with the other piles it knocked into. It's a relatively minor complaint, but can get annoying. Anyway, that's Oaxaca. When playing, for me it feels like a quick, energetic game, but not frantic. There's no race to use your dice quickly, just efficiently. Everyone takes their turn one at a time, not all at once. But you can see how everyone is progressing, so the pressure is on to do your best. This has led to a little AP, but pretty minimal. It only sticks out because in general the game moves along at a very steady clip. And while due to the card draw and the dice rolls, you don't have a ton of control over building your engine, it's fun for me to see it come together and really snowball what you can do by the third round. I'm so glad I backed Oaxaca. It's great for when you have a short amount of time while other groups finish their game, and everyone I've played it with has greatly enjoyed it, often asking where they can get their own copy. Which, unfortunately at the moment is only from the Undyne Studios website. 
I'll put a link in the show notes, but I hope you'll consider giving it a try. If you have any further questions about Oaxaca, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. There's a certain amount of pressure in the board game community to always be playing games that are more involved, more strategic, more intense. Heavy games are great and I love them, but they aren't always what I'm in the mood for. Sometimes I want to play a light card game after dinner, and that's where Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper comes in. Designed by Mike Fitzgerald and first published in 1998, Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is the first of the Mystery Rummy series and the second game of the series to be reviewed on the 5 by Mason reviewed Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde back in episode 19 last October. So if you'd like to learn more about the Mystery Rummy series, check out Mason's review. The box will tell you the player count is 2 to 4, but Mike Fitzgerald has said Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper was meant to be a two-player game and the increased player count was added at the request of the publisher, U.S. Games. I've only ever played it with two people, and it's great at that player count. As you might guess from the name, Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is based on Rummy, the traditional card game. I'm going to assume that most people listening to this have played Rummy at some point. I myself have many fond childhood memories of Rummy games with my mom, who was quite the card shark. At least playing Rummy, she was. My nostalgia for Rummy makes it especially fun to find a game like Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper, which takes the basic rules of Rummy and adds a few twists. It also adds a theme about Jack the Ripper, with pairs of cards labeled Victim and Scene, also sets of evidence cards for each of six different suspects. The victims and suspects have flavor text and art in the style of Victorian steel engravings. But despite that, the theme is rather loose. I think of it like those novelty playing cards you can get, with photos from a city or museum on each face card. Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is a bit more thematic than that, but only a bit. Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is played in three rounds. Like any Rummy game, you collect points by playing melds or runs of the same suit from your hand. But there are a few differences. Neither player can put down a meld until at least one victim card has been played. This can lead players to hold on to victim cards until they have some good melds in their hand. Why play a victim early if you're only helping your opponent? On the other hand, there's a rule in Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper that you can only play one gavel card per turn. A gavel card is a victim, scene, suspect, alibi, basically anything that isn't your basic suit card. If you have a handful of gavel cards near the end of the round, this can severely limit your ability to go out. Sometimes the game is about not waiting too long to start getting gavel cards out of your hand. There are a couple of cards that make the theme more vivid in Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper. Namely, Commissioner Resigns, Ripper Strikes, and Ripper Escapes. Each has a special ability completely outside traditional Rummy rules. Ripper Escapes is the most dramatic. Whoever plays it ends the game immediately, gets 35 points, and all melds on the table are worth nothing. But there's a catch and a big one. You can't play Ripper Escapes until all five victims have been played. And if the round ends with Ripper Escapes in your hand, you lose points. Ripper Escapes is a high-risk, go-for-broke card. It doesn't always pay off, but when it does, it can completely change the outcome of a game. Commissioner Resigns is another of these special cards. It forces both players to immediately play all victim cards in their hand. Normally, when you play a victim card, you get to draw two from the deck, but Commissioner Resigns makes you forfeit that bonus. It can feel like a jerk move, but those extra cards can make all the difference sometimes, so preventing your opponent from drawing them is totally worth it. Commissioner Resigns also works quite well with Ripper Escapes, as it gets any victim cards people might be hoarding out into play. There's also voting. Once per round, either player can call for a vote. Then both players write down which suspect they think will be the Ripper. This means which suit will have the most points on the table at the end of the round. Whoever voted correctly gets extra points. However, if there's an alibi in play, that suspect can't be the Ripper. 
10 points can make a big difference in this game, so vote wisely. My one criticism of Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is about accessibility. With all the suspects and victims having different colors, there are 12 different colors represented in the deck. Some of these colors are extremely similar, especially tan and yellow, also pink and orange under fluorescent lights. Those are the ones I have difficulty telling apart, and I have good color vision. I do not recommend this game for anyone with color blindness or poor vision in general. In terms of physical accessibility, I also find the cards way too thick and stiff. They're nice to hold in your hand, but unfortunately they do have to be shuffled. I have chronic wrist problems and riffle shuffling this deck is actively painful, so keep in mind that both color vision and the ability to shuffle may present obstacles to playing Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper. That said, despite accessibility issues, Mystery Rummy Jack the Ripper is a gem of my collection. A light, fun, two-player card game in a small box. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not searching for Prince Eddie's alibi, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Thanks for listening to The Five by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at Five by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fivebygames. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.